0: Hi, everyone. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and this is a live interview with a Petipod episode from the IPOS meeting in 2022. My guest today is a uh, real joy for me to have a chance to talk to. Dan Ciccato is professor and chair of orthopedics at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, which was my alma mater where I trained. And for those who know me, my practice sort of centers around hip and spine, and it is in no short measure to the fact that I spent quite a bit of time with Dan during fellowship and in many ways have tried to emulate his path towards a dual specialty practice. Dan is a wizard surgeon, is a really tireless researcher, a great leader, and our incoming president for the 2023-24 year for POSNA. Uh, He is somebody who I've looked up to, and I think that probably most of the former fellows really look up to, as somebody who truly loves what he does and enjoys the patients and the families And really, I think, strives to perform the best surgeries and give the best care to all of the children who he takes care of. Um, He took over for Tony Herring, who is probably one of the most iconic pediatric orthopedists to live. And that's not an easy task to do, but I think he's done it well. And he's open during this session about some of the challenges that he's faced across that uh, period of growth. I think probably most importantly, though, he's just a good person, and I think that comes out a lot during the interview. He's easy to talk to. He is uh, friendly and engaging, and I think that he makes for a really good interview and a very easy interview on my part. So. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with somebody who I look up to tremendously and I count as a good friend and I'm fortunate enough to do so. I would also encourage you, if you haven't, although probably if you've gotten to me, you've already found them, to spend some time on the uh, POSNA podcast, as Carter and Craig have done a tremendous job this week uh, seemingly providing nonstop interviews for the membership who wasn't able to be here or the ones who were and just want to reflect on what a great meeting it was. So thank you, and I look forward to many more good episodes in 2023. Dan, I'm really appreciative of you being here. Um, for the listener, we're sitting in the hospi- hospitality suite at IPOS this year. It's been a great meeting as always. and. Um, as I said in the intro, which Dan hasn't actually heard, he was uh, my mentor in Dallas, um, made it a great year. And in many ways, a, a, a big influence on me sort of separating my practice in the hip and spine, which is his big interest. And so um, it's a big honor for me to get
1: to talk to you today. Well, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate this. Yeah, it's awesome. Great.
0: So um, uh, we are both Northeasterners. You grew up in Buffalo, um, and I've sort of uh, I've seen pictures of you as a kid. There's one picture that goes around at the fellows thing every year. But what kind of kid were you?
1: Well, so I grew up my uh, I grew up with uh, in Buffalo, New York, and my parents were. My dad was a mechanical engineer, worked at Bethlehem Steel, and and, uh, my mom was a homemaker. And I had I ended up having three brothers. I really kind of grew up with two brothers and my third brother came along same parents 15 years younger than me I was the middle oh, wow. guy yeah and so um you know we played a lot of sports um we had a little musical thing which I'm sure you're gonna ask me about yeah um we uh you know I was I was active I was energetic you know I'm, I'm not sure I was ADD but you know I was uh good in school and like to play sports and you know pretty social and um you know, we had a lot of fun, uh, but my parents worked pretty hard. You know, they were pretty hardworking folks, and they expected a fair amount out of us, too. So, it, it was it was fun. Yeah.
0: You know. How was being the middle, I mean, I'm going to call you the middle, the middle of yeah. three boys? Um, I saw this great video of, like, three boys uh, shoveling a driveway, and, like, the first child like perfectly shoveled, the third child going in random directions right, right. And, the, and the third child not even want to go out there. Right. So were you sort of like a troublemaker and, and, um,
1: you know, what, it's yeah. interesting. I, uh, you know, birth order means something. So yeah. the middle guy has a certain reputation. Um, I was pretty, my older brother was very responsible. Yeah. I was also responsible, uh, but probably not as much as him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, my youngest brother was probably the you know, the social butterfly and the kind of, you know, the typical last child. So, um, you know, it was, it was, I was sort of in the middle, you know, they were both great guys and uh, we're still very close. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, I don't know if I'm the truly middle child sort of personality. It's, yeah. It's interesting. To, to
0: you talked about sports and I, I know your kids and they were in the athletics, what role do you think that had in terms of sort of preparation for later life?
1: Yeah. I think uh, anything that you can do when you're young is... Uh, you know, team sports is huge. So basketball and soccer were my games. And, um, you know, it, it you know, taught you so many things. And, um, I mean, I started out playing soccer at a sort of a very average level and then sort of matured physically and, and you know, got got to play on travel teams and was a captain of my high school soccer team. And, you know, I think those sort of things kind of, you know, I didn't even expect those sort of things, and it happened. And he kind of woke up and said, "You know, this uh, being elected captain was an interesting part of my life that I didn't expect, and so it brought out new responsibilities." And I think I grew in that in, the, in that experience. I think it helped me throughout life.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, it's it's funny. We um, at Emory have a pretty interesting screening process for applicants. Because of the fact, like you guys, I'm sure, in, uh, at UT Southwestern get 1,000 applicants for how many residency spots, you sort of have to stratify who you're going to look at. And we look for people who've been athletes, who've been captains. Um, and then actually the other thing, and again, yes, we make uh, a little bit of a joke that your uh, mu- uh, musical instrument of choice was an accordion, but we look for musicians because I think from a technical standpoint but also from diligence and um, and dedication to a craft there's really a big importance uh, uh, um, when you're looking at a resident candidate
1: no question I think there's two things that happen with uh, well, with sports it's if it's a team sport and even if it's an individual sport there's there's a certain amount of discipline that's necessary but I think the technical side of doing things like if you grow up playing, a certain sport, any sport, and you have to think about technique and musical instruments. I always think musical talent or musical, you know, uh, having to be disciplined and think about technique, I think plays well into surgical fields. And I've always been intrigued by people who do things technically very well, whether whatever it is, surgery or other things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you talked about your family. You went to Canisius
1: I understand college you were a, a golden griffin. I was a golden griffin, yes. Yeah, I yeah. get a lot of grief, yeah. you know, <laughs> from friends and otherwise about being a golden griffin. Yeah, I stayed in town, you know, my, um, it, it was just, uh, I, I, for a lot of reasons kind of just uh, decided I was going to stay local. Uh, it was a great, it also was a great school because I knew I wanted to go to medicine and uh, they had a great track record of getting folks in, uh, onto medical school, and so it served me very well, you know, it's a Jesuit education, um, you know, it's a small school, liberal arts school, I learned a lot, um, you know, in many ways, I, I sort of uh, had thoughts about heading out, and even now said, if there was one thing I would have done differently, it was Gone away to college. Yeah. Right? Because I think I missed out a little bit on that yeah. experience, but at the same time, you know, you, you make decisions, and it was a good decision for me at the time, and in the end, it, it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. So, well,
0: yeah. you've been away for a long time. and But you stayed also because you were at SUNY Buffalo. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I
1: stayed on med school, which was a phenomenal experience because we had a lot of, you know, unbelievable students from all over, we have some very good friends from medical yeah. school. And then I stayed on residency in Buffalo, which was also. You know, a great time.
0: Yeah, and I've heard before, um, we talked a little bit about mentors. This is like one of my favorite aspects of the podcast, but here you had some pretty strong mentors who helped guide you into ortho and then eventually into Pete's ortho as well, right? Totally, Yeah. yeah.
1: I think if one word, you know, sort of describes my little career, it's been luck. You know, I've run into amazing people. And so... Um, medical school, there was a a pathology professor that just intrigued me because he sort of distilled things down very clearly and made you think about it in, in big buckets and then everything else from there, you could understand that disease, um... Residency, I mean, my mentor was, you know, our chairman of our department was Bob Gillespie and, you know, he's legendary. Anybody that ever trained with him can, you know, do his, uh, do an impression of uh, Bob Gillespie and Wellhoff's stories. He was a phenomenal individual, great physician, really bonded and connected with families and patients and technically was, you know, a very good surgeon. Um, And he was incredibly thoughtful like, very deep thinker. His command of the English language is amazing. I went up there and uh, gave a presentation one time and some good, showed some good cases and some not-so-good cases, and he was trying to comment on the good cases, and he said, um, in a Scottish brogue, Dan, you've shown us some delicious X-rays. <laughs> and so it's a word, you know, it's a word you would never think about using. What he was trying to say is, I see those good cases, but what about, you know, that's yeah. so... But he captured, you know what he was really trying to say in a very distinct way. But now he was an inspiration to a lot of us. I mean, there's five or six of us that went into Peds Ortho because of that. But also in the program, you know, Larry Bone was the guy I connected with first. He was a traumatologist, uh, did my first research project We published on tibial fractures. Uh, Ed Simmons was a world-famous spine surgeon who did, you know, awake cervical osteotomies, Franklosing spondylitis, with uh, the patient in a barber chair under local anesthetic because he cracked back the yeah. neck at the time looks, on yeah. the posterior wedge osteotomy. And uh, I scrubbed in on two of those cases, and I was just there. And when it was time to crack it back, the patient was then sedated. And with the halo, you extended the neck, and then you had them, you put the bars on the, the vest, which was a cast. So, But he was a technical, phenomenal surgeon. And so I've been very, very lucky. And then there were some surgeons that you would never hear of who technically were wizards. There was a shoulder surgeon there that was... Just even the way he washed his hands at the sink was, you know, a perfect way to, or, a, you know, what I thought was a perfect way to kind of get it done in a very efficient way. So.
0: You know, one of the things that's interesting hearing you talk about this, and, and I, I, I feel the same way. It's funny because John Shannaker and I were at dinner last night sort of reminiscing about Neil Green. Yeah. Um, and then Greg Mensky, who is our mentor, is I feel as though, and, and this may have changed over time, that there was a lot of attention to those details, uh, maybe maybe my, my learners are actually paying attention to how I scrub my hands mm. or whatnot, but I feel as though that was an era where those kind of things were really ingrained in my head. I mean, I really very vividly remember doing cases just as a student watching Neil Green operate mm. and the way that he held... You know, control over the room and some of the technical pearls, which he wasn't definitely wasn't sharing with me directly, but he would share with the resident and then with me indirectly, and I paid attention to that. And I wonder whether or not that's changed over time with our current education.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to think. I think part of that is obviously you and you thinking about it and watching for it. I think that's one of the most important things. You know, the, the deliberate learning is all about kind of really paying attention and, and uh, looking at those things and. You know, and I do wonder the same thing, you know, in this hustle bustle world that we live in, you know, it just seems that times were, time was slower back then, right? You spend a little bit more time in and around the operating room, not hustle and bustle and turnover cases. And and so I think we just, we do need to be careful of that because um, it takes time to learn what we do.
0: Yeah. And the nuance is so important. And if you sort of miss that, um, you know, every so. fellow who's ever trained anywhere is like, man, I wish I could go back. Because once you start getting in practice and then you realize some of the nuance that you probably missed, even if you were trying to be a super attentive right. to it, right? Yeah. So, so you also got a, a master's degree, which is something that I think a lot of people in hindsight wish they had done. How yeah. did that come about?
1: So in, in our program, there were four spots, three spots, um, that did the five-year traditional orthopedic program. And then there was a spot that was dedicated to a year, year of research. So after your internship year, you did a year of research and then you went on to, um, through the rest of your residency. So I wanted to match in that spot. I actually um, didn't match in that spot. I matched in a regular spot and then said, you know, the person that was matching that spot didn't want to do it. And so I'm like, look, I I would love to do it. And so... Why'd you want to do it? I just wanted to... That's the other part that I've always been curious. I always wanted to kind of try to make things better you know and I was always intrigued by research I did research when I was in college Canisius actually had a great program with uh, Roswell Park Cancer Institute so I worked with a guy in a lab there throughout my time in college there um, Dr. Allen he was awesome and uh, it just it kind of created a greater curiosity to try to, to try to make you know new information and so uh so I worked in a guy his name was Izzy Ziv in his lab and so I said well I'm here for a year I might as well get you know I was doing a lot of biophysical sort of stuff and so I said let let me just get a a a degree and a master's in during the year and so it was not it was a lot harder than I thought (laughs) and fortunately I met somebody who was very very good at um, calculus because this was like Calculus yeah. more than I'd ever done before. And so it, it really helped. I hooked up uh, with this person. They helped me out.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, I ha- I've had a number of people on, uh, Mike Vitali being the one who sort of comes to mind most, and he has an MPH. And I asked him about that, and he said, you know, the thing that I think it gave me was the ability to be in the room with the statisticians and really understand what they're talking about, even though a lot of that doesn't apply to what I do on a daily basis. It gives you that voice and that vocabulary. Do you feel the same way that this gave you a framework, even though you're not doing any of the stuff you're doing?
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't really use it except for I do think that it makes you think a little bit differently and has a depth of knowledge that is more than I would have had if I had not done it. And so, um, and you understand the language a little bit more, um, so anytime you can, you know, obviously gain knowledge, I think it's helpful. But I think it helps you without you even re- recognizing it sometimes.
0: Without without jumping ahead, um, have you considered getting, or maybe you have, not I just don't know, a, a a more of a business or managerial degree? Now that you're in a you know similar sort of thing like that yeah. knowledge, but it's tough. Twenty five years in practice when you're as busy as you are.
1: Yeah. No. I did. De- I did when I became chief, I sort of uh, said to myself, you know, i probably, it'd be good to do the same thing, replicate what I did when I was a resident to say, let's get another degree to kind of just be in the classroom and almost like to give yourself a little bit of time to kind of think deeper and to learn. It was, uh, and I searched uh, a few programs actually and, and uh, never did it. Um, so yeah, no, I think it would have been valuable and still valuable today. A yeah. lot of guys and, and ladies do it. So I think it's useful.
0: So you then uh, ended up coming down to Dallas, which, again, you know, it's funny because I've been talking with a lot of the, uh, with the younger folks here about sort of the modern uh, peds-ortho match and the, and the atmosphere. But, and I know how it was, you know, 14, 15 years ago when I was interviewing for you, it was probably even different. How many places did you interview at? How did you sort of end up at Dallas yeah. to
1: start with? So Bob Gillespie, again, was my influence, and he was the visiting professor in Dallas in 1995. And so I finished my residency in 1997. And so um, I, I, was, I knew I wanted to do peds. I, I mean, I excluded everything else as I rotated through, and I was on the rotation when he was coming down to Dallas, and and I knew about the Scottish Rite, and uh, so he went down, and he came back with, and he was good friends with the the staff down there, and he came back with really you know big thumbs up and on the institution. But I still remember I interviewed at seven places, and I still remember those interviews, and I think it was one of the highlights of my career because you're going to interview with people that you read about and that you, you know, you look up to, and um, it was, it was a great time, and uh, I actually was supposed to interview it at an eighth place, but kind of ran out of a little bit of cash, and so I had, <laughs> had to cancel that last one, but I still remember sitting in, you know, Dennis Wanger's office, Jim, uh, Jim Kassar's office, you know, all the, all the you know, the big wigs uh, at that time, And um, but I went, when I walked into Scottish Right, I knew it was... The place for me. Same with me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely just yeah. sort of that kind of place. What, what, and I almost blew it because I think I interviewed with John Birch and and John. <laughs> I interviewed with them all, yeah. and so I interviewed with John and he uh, down in his clinic. So he used to have a Monday night, Monday morning scoliosis clinic. And so I still remember he asked me a question. There's a left thoracic curves, and he's, he's like, "Does anything come to mind?" And Fortunately, I got lucky and answered it right. But I felt like I didn't get to know John. I wanted to put my best foot forward. So as I'm waiting for the next interview later on in the day, I saw him in his office. And so I knocked on the door and said, Dr. Bridge, can I get a little bit more time with you and chat with you? And he was very nice to do so. But in retrospect, I thought, God, that was a little bold. But uh, but no, I as soon as I walked in, and they were doing Monday Night Conference down in the clinic at that time. Yeah, And I still remember one of the residents kind of getting up there and being asked about... Uh, Calcano navicular Coalition and kind of struggling a little bit and, and Charlie was running conference and uh, you know it was a little tough on him but very fair and so it was you know it's just something you know you make big decisions with your yeah. heart not your head and and so it was a place for me
0: was Charlie intimidating to you as a uh, applicant because he scared the hell out of me
1: <laughs> yeah so Charlie um, you know when I joined, when I went down there there were six staff and um, each of them were different. But they worked incredibly together. But Charlie was the first. Well, Bob and Charlie were very good friends. Okay, and they golfed a lot, and they, you know, I'm sure they chatted around uh, both in the classroom and at the bar. Uh, but Charlie was the first guy I rotated with. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. and so very intimidating. Um, probably the most um, caring individual though that you you know you could ever meet, and you know he has this bigger bark than his bite, and he's he was phenomenal. I worked with him for the first three months. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, I was telling somebody the other day we had the research group that uh, you had put together a month ago and yeah. I think one of the highlights of that was when Softy Charlie said that he was proud of all of his kids yeah. who had gone off and come back. I thought right. that was sort of a cool yeah. a cool moment I for agree. all of us. So. A huge highlight. so you know it's interesting reflecting now on on where your career is as somebody who has sort of uh, developed the well not sort of who has developed these subspecialty areas of interest but Dallas is, has been, and probably to some extent will always be a little bit of a generalist place. And I'm curious, as you were coming out of your, uh, your fellowship the decision to stay at a place where that was sort of the expectation that you would, you know, do a little bit of everything. And I mean, I remember uh, John Schiller and I doing the club foot with you. I remember mm-hmm. doing some guided growth cases with you. Yeah. And I think that that's always been a little bit of a pride to some extent of, of the um, center. But did you consider going to a place where you could sub-specialize,
1: or did you like the idea early on of being a, a generalist? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us go, it's even interesting today as we interview fellow applicants. You know, I think part of it is we potentially could be operating on all parts of the body or really treating the whole child as as we think about being pediatric orthopedist. So um, I, I didn't know where the field was going. I knew my interest within pediatric orthopedics, um, and uh, but I also liked to do clubfoot surgery when I was starting out. So I don't think I had a grand vision of you know, sub-specialty and sub-specialization coming. And I was actually a little afraid of it because I did enjoy it, but I also wanted to kind of dig deep on spine and hip things. So so when they asked me to join um, during the fellowship to, to join as a staff, I said to myself, you know, what am I gonna add to this group? I didn't wanna just come in and be, you know, do everything that they were doing. I wanted to kind of add something because I think that's part of the responsibility of joining a group. And so there were sort of two things that um, were missing in my mind, from Scottish right at the time, thoracoscopy was sort of really taking off, and they weren't really doing it at the time. And then hip, um, you know, hip preservation, adolescent hip stuff, you know, uh, were the two things, and they, both of them played into my interest. Um, so, you know, I kind of worked on both of those, and you know, brought them to Scottish right.
0: Go, talk me through a little bit about. Uh, I don't want to talk about spine and hip, but um, you know, I have a partner, Bob Bruce, who talks a little bit about the '90s, and he graduated from fellowship and uh, came to Emory in 1994. And, and he is a really technically gifted, spectacular surgeon. But he said it was so different because there was no motor uh, uh, monitoring. Right. Uh, you know, you were doing something that I think in today's standards was higher risk now granted you were getting less correction and you weren't putting implants necessarily but until thoracic pedicle screws came about but he says sometimes that you know it's it's amazing that you know that we've we've come uh where we have especially when you look at that era where the risks were maybe a little bit higher because you couldn't monitor safety yeah what drew you to spine you know given some of
1: those uh those challenges yeah i deep down i always like big surgery yeah and and why that is I don't really know but I think you know I think you have to do a little bit of um, self-evaluation and and, uh, really look in the mirror and say what what are you what are you good at and what what could you you know improve on and I've always been um, very interested in the technical side as we we talked about earlier so um, I always thought that you know I could I could help Promote safety and spinal cord monitoring has been a huge part of um, my career, uh, in part because uh, of a neurologic deficit that I had ten years into my career, which you know I think about almost every day. And so, um, I always liked big surgery, and, and I think that. I, but I also thought that there was room for improvement, you know, and an opportunity. So when I was a resident, we had spine surgeons that were placing pedicle screws. When I got to Dallas, they weren't a lot of pedicle screws being placed, certainly not in the thoracic spine, I mean, it was before that era, essentially, and so was the only one doing them in 1997, and then, you know, but I was doing lumbar pedicle screws, and then, so I lived in an era, I thought you were going down the road, if I lived in a beautiful area, I straddled, you know, the old with the new, and uh, again, was very lucky to kind of work with people that allowed me to kind of bring some things to Dallas. And uh, start to develop some things in Dallas that I'd seen in my residency, but also leveraging all the things we had at Scotch, Wright.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because I feel, uh, hopefully, every surgeon who does goes into spine or whatever they're going to go into is going to feel that about that era. Like I feel very fortunate that I came out about at a time where nerve monitoring was standard, where we had you know improved safety and different modularity in terms of the implants, and you know we had. You know, link uh, linkage and reduction options yeah. that you never yeah. had, right. um, and then now the guys are coming out like, "Thank God, I'm here when Nav is around." Right, right? right. And, and right. so I think every every generation yeah. is sort of goes through that. Now the hip side of things, I think, is also fascinating because I, I've always been amazed. I mean, I, like I, you know, I do PAO. And, but I've learned from you and I've learned from Dave and, yeah. um, and then from my own experience, but you really brought what I would consider a very te- technically demanding surgery to a new center that historically likes innovation, but is also a relatively conservative place. And you went to, um, to train with professor guns. Tell me about that evolution and, how That came about because that was very. I mean, I remember my first IPOS, and people really quit guns. was there, I, he, mm-hmm. they really questioned him on stuff. So, yeah, I'm sure there was a little pushback from the John Birches and the Steve Richards, the world who were like, Yeah, what are you doing there, cowboy?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the skepticism I think is healthy, you know, and, and all the, the folks at Scottish right were, you know, question everything, which they should, yeah, right? And we, we continue to do it today. So, again, I, I when they asked me to stay, I said, we need to bring some hip stuff here. And so uh, I'd been exposed to it. Larry Bone was doing PAOs when I was a resident. He was good friends with Jeff Mask because of the trauma sort of side yeah. of things. And, um, and so I was exposed to it. And so when I said, I need to bring this here, how am I going to get the experience? I said, well, let's go to the source. So I called Gon's. Just out of the blue. Called him when I was a fellow. Hey,
0: John Birch, I want to hang out. Hey, yeah. hey, hey, Ryan. Ryan, right.
1: it's a little little a little, little uh, out there. And uh, he said, how much time do you... So I got on the phone with him, and he was very nice up until he asked me, well, how much time do you have to come? And I said, I think I have six weeks after my fellowship before I start my... You were married... I was not married at okay, the time. Yeah, yeah. No, I was not married at the time. And so, and he said, you know, I said, I have six weeks. He's like, you need a bare minimum of three months. And he hangs up the phone, literally hangs up the phone. I mean, he was nice <laughs> up until that point. Yeah. So then I got Larry Bone to kind of reach out to him, and I called him back a few months later. And so I, my goal was to say, tell, ask Dr. Bone to say, listen, could you vouch for me a little bit that I've had experience with you? And he was pretty good friends with God's at the time. So I called him a couple months later and he let me come and I said, listen, I got, I I was able to squeeze out seven weeks because I took two months off between fellowship and started my staff position. Um, And then my first cousins were getting married in Italy. They live in Italy. And so uh, that's why I couldn't go the total of two months because he got married the last week of whatever that is, July. And so... So, yeah, I arrived there in 1990. I took off August 1st of 1998 after my fellowship. And uh, we got there. There There's a couple of people that I just met along the way that were visiting. And we looked at the surgical schedule on a Sunday for that week. And there were no, I went there to learn PAOs. And I looked on the schedule and it said, hoof to subluxation. I'm like, what the heck is that? I came here to see PAOs and he had no PAOs. That was a surgical hip dislocation, yeah. which was 1998. So we were probably the first, one of the first North Americans to see this surgical dislocation. And again, and this is another sort of lesson learned is that when you go visit people, you're going to see them do A, but you'll see them do, you know, B and C and D. And it opened my eyes. I mean, imagine surgical dislocation, and yeah. all the things that you could do in pediatric orthopedics. So. It was an unbelievable time, and uh, not, uh, people recognized that Gans was seemingly out there and kind of, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. But when you went to visit him and you saw the way he did things and the way he studied the blood supply to the femoral head, the blood supply to the acetabular fragment as he was developing the PAO, you realized he was, uh, he was just as careful as all of us. But he was a little bit more innovative than perhaps all of us, and so, um, and he also did things very interestingly. I mean, he operated three days a week. He had a clinic on Wednesday, so he operated Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. He had a clinic all day on Wednesday into the evening, oftentimes, and then Friday was the day for research. And um, you know, and he, and he, and the same thing as we talked about earlier: Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. He wasn't trying to do operate from morning till night. He was doing. A good number of cases but he usually did like 3, 4 o'clock and I'm assuming he did and then we'd round and then, you know, he probably spent a lot of time thinking and developing lots of ideas. Yeah,
0: which I think is really important something we don't yeah. get to do as much and I've, I've heard that he's a real Tim Schrader spent time with him and Tim actually uh, enjoyed the fact since Tim's fluent in German mm. that he got to go into a clinic and like actually sort of see the whole exam but he he sp- speaks a lot about the technical expertise that, you know, he did a lot with a knife and then, he did everything yeah, with a knife, exactly, like yeah, 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 which is pretty remarkable, yeah. you know. And then I know, and he's uh, left-handed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And and I know that when he uh, that you know you brought him over, yeah. to and did cases here, um, right? And without and you know he did his uh, first cut without X-ray, and I mean there's a lot of stuff that's yeah. pretty remarkable that he was able to yeah. do.
1: Yeah, no, he was. Uh, so in 2002, he was you know Tony Herring, who's been also a great influence in my career. He said, I think it's time to bring Gans as, as the Brandon Carroll. And so that was four years after I visited him. And I was, and I was communicating with Gans. And, I, uh, and so we, he, Tony said, listen, we should bring him. And so in 2002, he came, and he did two cases. He did a PAO on a young lady who had bilateral hip dysplasia, pretty significant. And then he operated on a young lady who had Perthes. And she had this really bad deformed head. And he basically took it apart. It was almost like an, we describe it as like an orange peel. He kind of orange peeled the the head, did something to the center of the head, put it back. And it lasted. I followed her along and it lasted about six years or so. And then as she became an adult, it, it kind of went sideways, but nobody would have ever touched that hip. And she was much better for, you know, six years. So, um, so that was, that was fantastic. And we had a Great time. So I visited him when IMAS was in Montreux. I went over in 2002 before he came over, and then Ernie Sink and I were there in 2004, the year he retired. Uh, and then uh, we've communicated back and forth. We're actually writing a chapter together on this new book, and that's been sort of interesting to kind of work together. But no, it was a unbelievable experience, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and you know, it's been a, one of those relationships that's. That was super great for my career.
0: Yeah. Uh, So um, I think from a practical standpoint, talk about... You brought back a technique that nobody knew how to do at your center, which is a reasonably technically demanding um, Mm -hmm. thing. And so, for example you know, in modern terms, it could be the tether. Um, Going to a center where nobody does anterior surgery or, you know, if you're limb deformity, there's a fair number of things that, say you were going to do a super hip and nobody at your center did it. So bring something to a place like that and not having any backup. I mean, having your closest backup be, you know, thousands of miles away overseas. How do you do do that? I mean, how, how do you go through the process of making sure that you're doing it for the right indications? I mean, this was pre sort of easy internet sending them files, doing it safely. And then if something goes wrong, you
1: can, yeah, you know. well, it is, it is a little scary, but you know, there's a lot of things in play there. So, when I was a fellow, I actually reviewed the experience with our triple osteotomies in, in hips, and they were doing the steel at the time. and I reported it posing in a podium presentation, and the results weren't very good at all because you can't medialize the yeah. fragment, it was the biggest thing, and the coverage was better, but the patients all had Trendelenburg lurches. And so when I presented it and I gave that report and it was a, just an honest report, uh I, Howard Steele stood up in the back. And uh and he was amazing cuz he said, "You know, when I developed this, this was a salvage procedure. So your results are actually pretty darn good." And so, but they weren't, I mean, for what we could do today. And here comes a guy who studied it well. And so it was. I wasn't convinced it was the right thing, but when I went over there and saw the results and saw how he was doing it, and he did everything with a knife. He was, a, he was an incredible technician, guns. Um, that I, I was convinced it was the right thing. And I still remember the first case I did. It was actually when I got back. So Vish Tallwalker was a fellow at the time, and Scott Shoemaker, both of them wow. scrubbed on this case. Yeah. And it took me six hours. Yep. And the correction was probably retroverted. Yes. acetabulum. But that kid, interestingly, has done great. And he actually came back as an adult 20 years later. And he's doing well. I mean, it's not a perfect hit by any means. Yep. But um, so, and, and, you know, now it's, you know, two hours less surgery, depending if I'm doing it or the fellow's doing it. Uh, but it's it's really his, the way he studied it and the way he really, he, every case they grabbed as much information out of every case and it was really a fascinating uh, way and you could see how he got to where he is and he was, he's a workaholic God's, and he you know, worked late into the evening and um, you know, But that's how you get things done and how you develop new things. I mean, he's an incredibly talented guy. Um, but bringing it to was a bit challenging. But you know who called me on the first case where I got that case? Charlie Johnston. He saw him in his clinic yeah. and he said, hey, bring your – I still remember when he called me. He said, bring your gans back. I was actually at Children's at the time just doing a case or something when he called. And I said, oh, hey, what's going on? I said, bring your gans bring your We've got a case for you. So.
0: That's, awesome. That's how it went. Yeah. It was
1: a guy actually, you know, hit this place on yeah. a comedy
0: girl's but it was That's funny. Kid. So my first case, also a male, had been saved for me by my senior partner and actually had Dave come out and do it with me. Uh-huh. Bad. It was a, it was a hemiplegic CP, pretty highly subluxed. Um, and it took six hours. And part of it was... You know, They actually gave Dave privileges for that day, or yeah. maybe they didn't, yeah. and it just happened anyway, and he <laughs> scrubbed in. Right. But I had the opportunity to present it at the Gons course in Vail the next year, yeah. and Gons' first comment was, when are you revising it? In front of the whole group. <laughs> oh, so funny. Sure. Do you, so um, if you look back at sort of your early hip career, are there things that you're like, man, I wish... I wish I'd known then what I like. What, what are some of the biggest things that you've changed in your PAO practice? I know that when, when I did cases originally, we would take down the rectus. Yeah. And that was a big difference. But outside of that, are there other things that you think that you've, that were materially different that you go, man, we've come a long way in this one area?
1: Yeah. For PAOs on the technical side, probably just, I think it's, a, like you said earlier, I think it's a difficult procedure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more difficult to take a fellow resident especially through, just because they're the ones who are going to do it, the residence unit, they can do the approach in certain parts of it. But I think it's a hard procedure. It's a lot of little things that make it go very smoothly and then allow you to rotate the, the fragment to right where it needs to be. And that, I think, is the biggest change. You know, learning how to, you know, put the socket in exactly where it the right position, and get as much correction without overcorrection, and making sure version's okay. So I didn't—I I realized that I didn't know how to put the fragment in the right spot until Gans came to us in 2002 and actually did the case. Um, and since that time, I think we've done a done a good job. But from a technical side, there's really not much has changed. I think the incision smaller, sparing the rectus. Um, you know, being safer. You know, I make the second cut different. I use a saw. I don't use a. Osteotome. Uh, we've published on some complications that can happen, mm-hmm. you know, with stress fractures and that sort of thing. And so, I think trying to avoid those things. I think it's one; it's the most functional operation I did. It is.
0: It's awesome. Yeah.
1: It is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And we owe a lot to him, and he's, you know, just really moved the field on that and surgical dislocation too. I mean, look at the, all the applications we use. Yeah. You know that technique.
0: Although I sort of wish that some of those applications remain because it's one of my all-time favorite operations, and now I've got. Cliff Wilman has a spectacular hip yes. and so he he has sort of um, negated my that utility for me. Um, it is funny. I've watched the the first taggins that Tony wrote that you guys started making those videos. Uh, your PAO video, I probably watched a hundred times. Because I mean, for the first thirty, I watched the entire right. video before, yeah. and I still remember when you think you're medial enough go another salon, I, the, all the uh, I use those same lines
1: today yeah. I mean it's uh, Matt Hachin gives me all kinds of grief because he's like yeah, you use the same line I'm like yeah well yeah. if it works don't don't change it yeah. I mean I'm always looking for ways to improve for sure because that's the way we should always be but man there's certain things that, that are there's certain things in, in what we do that are tried and true that should always remain and that is you know those are the things that we should make sure that we don't lose yeah So let's talk, let's
0: shift gears a little bit to spine. Um, And so, you know, again, one of the great aspects of the Scottish Rite Fellowship is the complexity of the spine. And I was talking not long ago with Sukin on the podcast. He remembers well the the first Fox study group when Mm -hmm. we were at that uh, hotel in Dallas. And Mm -hmm. it was you and Lenke and um, Sukin and Peter. And, you know, I think it underlies the fact that your your practice is incredibly complex and do a lot of three columns and, and resections. But when you combine that, especially in a period of time where you were innovating in the hip and bringing a new thing, and as you said, a very challenging procedure, I mean, for me, that's been one of the one of the struggles is how do you maintain skill on both? And you said you had not listened to the Lanky podcast, but I asked him about the ability to do multiple things. And I referenced you, and he said, well, Dan's technically an excellent surgeon, but I think it, it's, it's, it is it's hard. I know Gons has given you grief yes. at times about yes. doing his spine. Yes. I, I was at the <laughs> tenure Brandon Carroll, and yep. he you know, he basically, I think, thinks you're crazy for trying right. to do this. But how did you go about the process of, of growing that part of your practice? Because you were only six years in when Gons came back or whatever, yep. and, um, and building both sides of the... the, the
1: Thing. You know, it's a gradual thing. I mean, on the spine side of things, you know, I went and, uh, you know, I wasn't busy early, like most people aren't, I wasn't busy clinically early on. So the thoracoscopy part of it, uh, I sort of, under the guise of research, did a ton of thoracoscopy in pigs and, uh, did published a lot on it and on the technical side of it and sort of developed my technique. But, you know, with pe- folks like, uh, Peter and, um, there were a few other folks that uh were were doing it uh george Pachetti was a guy up in the pacific northwest that was doing a lot of it so huh. uh, you know we did a lot of thoracoscopy courses and so and that's also an opportunity you go as faculty much like this meeting you go as faculty and you kind of teach a little you hope to pass on something but really if you do it right you listen and you kind of learn you know and so um i, I did a lot of research in, in the thoracoscopy uh, space and and got my skills up in that and uh i would I did a lot of spine when I was a resident. I mean, Simmons, again, going back to that, and even on our Pete side, we did a fair amount of spine, but the spine fellowship there was very active. And as a resident, you were putting pedicle screws in the lumbar spine because it was a very busy place. Um, And so, you know, I had that experience. And then I started, and then, you know, with the, I mean, think about, everybody was doing spine and scotch right so i had experience with tony and charlie and steve and john and Lori and carl and so you know each of them brought something different and i kind of tried to meld those together and just slowly moving so i was competent and safe and um you know doing hemi vertebra resections early on doing them front and back and still remember the first one i did with charlie uh and then i said you know you know Maybe we can start to do these more posteriorly, and then I, my first VCR was an anterior-posterior VCR. I still remember reading that article from Boachi and uh, David Bradford's article, original article in 1997. Uh, and so I did it front and back, and I, I went in the front, and you know the epidurals were bleeding like crazy, and I, I actually had to just I had to abandon it and didn't get much correction at all. It was a very challenging kid, and so trying to be safe, but also trying to build on all those little things. And then I visited Larry a couple times. Um, he's been a great, you know, person. And so, you know, you learn from your colleagues, too. And, and, and uh, you know, um, and then we I was on the sort of circuit, if you will, with, with Medtronic uh, in terms of doing, you know, cadaver courses. And that was great because I was there as faculty, but again, I stayed after. And sometimes I stayed after with Larry and we kind of worked together and, and uh, just you know dissect, like, where is the spinal cord even though this was a pedicle screw course yep. we're like look I'm you know venturing into vcrs let's see where the cord is let's see if we can you know do a vcr and, and uh, again taking advantage of those opportunities
0: do you think that that's changed um, you know I think it with the advent of everything I mean Posit Academy is this incredible repository I don't think I've ever a resident read a textbook exactly. um service yeah. in, in 5 years um Do you think that that has made it so people are less likely to go visit a center? I mean, do you have your numbers come down? Probably,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, we get less visitors. I visit less. Um, Yeah, I think it's... I mean, those are unbelievable resources. I mean, we all use them. I use them. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's probably less. But I think you lose something because on POSN Academy, if you go see a spondylolisthesis reduction, that's all you're going to see. But again... When you go and visit somebody, you you go there to see certain thing, but you're going to see other things. Yeah. And I saw that on my traveling fellowship with the SRS. You know, we went to go see Daniel Chopin and the Colorado system and what he did. But he had all these little things, like his mallet was very interesting. I never adopted it, but it was an interesting thing. And the way he measured his rod before he put it in was also very interesting. Um, so, you, you know, you pick up things that you don't necessarily think you're going to... Yeah,
0: easy. I was gonna c- comment. Your you were it was you and Vicara. That yeah. was a pretty high powered
1: uh, uh, review.
0: Although you told some funny stories about Alex when he was <laughs> <as> a professor. <laughs> Never got off his
1: phone. Was, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alex. Yeah. 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 It was a great group. It was me, Tim Cooklobe, Alex Vicaro, and then our senior person was Courtney Brown. Wow. That's yeah. Amazing. So yeah. it was it was amazing. Three weeks, and we went. You know, we went to five countries, eight cities in three weeks. And you know how it is at the end of that—you did it, right? You did. You know, you can give your talk, uh, you know, blindfolded, and you could also get everybody, everybody else else's talk, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know. And then at the end, you're kind of ready. At the end of three weeks, you know, with you know, basically with the night and day, and uh, but it was a dynamic group. Yeah, and Alex is uh, still a good friend, as is Tim, and uh, I haven't chatted with Courtney in a while. But that was an unbelievable experience, and you know, there were people that I would have never talked with before, uh, and still talk with today. I saw Pierre Rousseli at the, at the SR yeah. meeting. We always talk about, you know, sagittal plane. I'm still trying to learn it from him. And so Daniel Chopin, and Henry Halm. I mean, people that I communicate with, yeah. you know, on a fairly regular basis because of that experience. So,
0: yeah, that's, uh, that's invaluable. That's great. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your, your transition to chief. You know, I was, uh, a fellow under Tony. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting, as I've come through sort of my career in Atlanta, you, as somebody who always sort of strives to, you know, be the best in whatever you do, whether it be clinically or research or, or um, uh, from a from a practice standpoint, the assumption is that everybody sort of wants to be achieved. But then when I think when you get, at least for me, when you get about seven, eight years into your practice, you're like, oh, my God, that's a lot of work. Yeah, And you have... I mean, you have a really busy research uh, life. You've got you know three kids, and that was sort of right in the heart of their, Like, I, my my kids are around the age of when when yours you started, or when, when you were going through that process. And then, plus your clinical practice yeah. was that something you always wanted to do, and sort of fell into your lap, or how like how, how did that process go?
1: Well, I mean, it's it never anything I even thought about. I mean, I, I just felt lucky to be at Scottish right as a fellow, yeah. and then I was super lucky that they asked me to be the staff, and then. You know when this came up, Tony has spoken to me about it, and you know I was sort of a little taken aback, but you know it was an opportunity, and I there's so many great things about Scottish Right, but every place could get better, and you know I thought I think there there still are plenty of opportunities, and there were opportunities too at the time that uh, Tony built a you know beautiful place, and the most important thing I think that he did was he brought you know people on and he let them. Blossom like when I went to him and said I want to bring this PAO stuff. He didn't bat an eyelash. Right? He said, Yeah, but you got to you got to show me that it's going to work. You know, it's not like you can just do anything. But and and so he brought the right, brought the right people on the bus. But there was you know the, we were in a I think in a transition too. I mean, not only you know healthcare has changed fairly dramatically in the last ten years, and you know the staff was you know there was transitions that were going to happen and uh, so and, but we're a small shop too it's not like this is taking the chief job in a big multi center hospital or multi you know uh, discipline hospital and it's a small shop and we have great administrative team and we have a great board that kind of sees the same vision and mission of the hospital and so I, I sort of I thought about it and said, you know, could I still do it? Because there's no way I was going to kind of slow down on clinical medicine or research. And the research is the thing that probably took the biggest, yep. you know, sort of hit because, you know, those are the kind of things that um, you don't have to.
0: You know, you took over for one of the major icons and, and you talked about sort of uh, the vision that you had. Uh, how how do you how do you go about transitioning from this giant in the field who had a vision that was his yeah. and that the the center was unan or was uh, synonymous with for so long to like create a new vision and then get the people on board with with those changes especially because you came on in what year? It's ten years ago. Yeah, so you know Almost right after old. the. Giant financial collapse. You guys were yep. going
1: through uh, different financial
0: yep. times. Like, how, how did you go about doing that? In
1: 2012, it was. It was January of 2012. Well, it, it, number one, you have to realize that. Uh, I mean, Tony built a you know a phenomenal institution, and number one, you can't replace Tony Herring. Yeah. Right. You have to realize that. I mean, Tony Herring is Tony Herring. He's a special guy that has qualities that. Uh, I don't have, and but there are some things that I think I brought to the table that Tony didn't necessarily have to deal with, and so he, didn't, he probably has, he has the talent to do it. But um, I think we weren't as uh, data-driven, and um, you know, this medicine is so complex now, and uh, we were growing. And uh, you know, when I joined, I was a seventh staff; and we were a pretty small shop, but. Uh, And we're still a small shop, but I think um, with the growth of the institution, you know, things had to be put into place that I think are helpful. And I think I've done, if I had to grade myself as the chief over the last 10 years, I'd probably give myself a B minus. You know, there's so many things you need to learn. Uh, I think one of the things as you bring on more people, you know, you have to be available to them. And you can't be always in the operating room and always be in the clinic. I mean, I think people want to kind of hear from you what they think, how they're doing, and that sort of thing, and and I've been okay with that. I haven't been as good as I could or should be in it, and in the last few years, I've gotten a whole lot better at trying to kind of sort of carve out time to say, you know, bop in people's office and just kind of chat and, and try to build, you know, uh, put some sweat equity and some uh, in, uh, some equity into the into the relationships to kind of make sure that everybody's working together. Because I think that was the secret sauce is that, you know, Tony had people that are super talented, but they worked well together. And I think we have exactly the same thing, only it's 3x, right? We have 23 yeah. people, incredibly talented. I look across our staff and go, man, it's unbelievable. Smarter people than me and very, very talented and, you know, but we're spread out and it's more difficult to kind of bring people together, but we make it a point to kind of every week have a staff meeting and, and try to do our conferences together yeah, so
0: yeah. I think that is that's the secret sauce to the, some of the success that you yeah. guys have had over time so um, I'm curious it, this is like a classic interviewer question but what would be one thing that you really wish you had done different and what's one of the things that you're most sort of proud that you guys have achieved
1: since you've been chief um, I think taking more time I think uh, with with um, the personnel, you know, the staff, and and uh, spending more time with uh, people, uh, thinking better at that today, uh, more efficient uh, in doing other things to free up more time and prioritizing that. Not that I didn't want to do it; it's just I didn't think I didn't recognize that it was, was it was important. I think the thing I'm proud of is the the, the team that we built yeah. and the success of each of the individuals and. Um, You know, if you look, I mean, I can name all the staff, but if you look at any of our staff, they've been very, very successful clinically. I mean, as an academic institution, doing things well clinically on the research side uh, and on the education side. And so, you know, we have a cohesive group that uh, really sticks together. I mean, it's like a family. You know, there's all kinds of little things that happen, but I think everybody recognizes that, we were very lucky and that we have a great team and that we work together.
0: I think, you know, uh, from the outside and knowing the members, it's, it's really remarkable because like you said, you really were, a, we were a general place when I was a fellow, when you were a fellow and we had the relationship with, um, with Dallas Children's, but Tony was just coming on, um, Lane, uh, Lawson, but they were basically like trauma people. Yeah. and they didn't really have anything else and it's so cool now 13 years later to see dave has taken over so much of john's practice and you know tony is now really well known for foot and ankle and, and lanes i mean all, all the i think job. that's that's so cool that, is that those so guys cool. have come about um, and actually
1: it, it's it's it, that is as amazing as anything and that uh, people have taken on like they've taken on roles uh, because they saw the need and they've totally invested it so all those folks are like, Great examples. I mean, Dave on the lower extremity side, Tony on the foot and ankle side, Lane on the uh, neuromuscular side. I mean, our spine team is incredibly talented with uh, Megan and Amy and Brandon and Jason, and um, and then Carl is like the glue. Yeah, you know, he does everything. He does everything well. He's super energetic. Uh, I mean, you know, we can go right down the line. we got the the hip team is is phenomenal with Henry doing scopes and Will Morris, phenomenal, and and Harry, of course, with Perthes. And I don't want to leave anybody out because that's not going to be good. But Tony's still going. He can. Tony, <laughs> still <laughs> going. Absolutely. First guy at every meeting, you yeah. know, uh, doing a great job. And our, our sports team is ridiculous. Phil Wilson's a great leader holding down the Ford up in the Frisco campus. And the research uh, is going great there. And our non-operative team is awesome. Uh, Christine is at Children's and, and uh, Lawson. I mean, look at the things Lawson's doing. And Christine's been a great leader. And, uh, on the fracture side of things. Um, who else am I missing? Chris Stutz. Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good friend of mine. And the, yeah. <laughs> another Vandy. Yeah, exactly. We have Vanderbilt throughout, but yeah, Stutz is a ridiculous yeah. surgeon. shifts well, no, and technically gifted yeah. yeah, and Scott. Crazy good. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's what it means. So I sit there and I, say, I look around me and I'm going, you know, amazing surgeons, amazing people, uh, researchers, clinicians, um, high energy, you know. Very blessed to to be uh, at Scottish Rydon. yeah but we're blessed to be pediatric orthopedists. Too, yes, right. I mean, people come to us say, "Please take care of my most prized, you know, thing in my life." Who
0: wants to get better and Who isn't to gonna better. like you know ask yeah. you for extra narcotics if they don't? Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's one of the greatest things. So, as if you didn't need enough responsibilities, then you sort of roll into the presidential line. Yeah, a which is really cool. I mean, it's. I think it's. It, one of the great things about you know this meeting, about the annual meeting, but obviously you know for you and I about being uh, one of your mentees in fellowship is seeing people who you know. I mean, I've gotten to be very good friends with Jeff and with Todd and, um, and I've gotten to know men and Mike Vitale. And it's, it's really exciting as a younger person, you probably went through this as well, the people who you know and who've gotten to, to um, uh, respect tremendously get into this role and seeing what... Opportunities lie ahead. I'm curious because I've asked the, I've uh, actually in this room um, have asked a lot of the former sort of vice presidents what their vision is, and it's hard. Like you know Scottish Rite really well, and you know yeah. all the blemishes. You can fix it. How how do you go through the process of looking at POS and figuring out a vision and figuring out like what can I do in a year?
1: Um, right. Yeah. I, I think it's a learning process too, and I think the way it's structured today is really good. Coming in as. You know, you're on the PL line uh, from the very beginning, so you have two or three years to kind of ramp up. And I'm still learning. And uh, and the people that have come before me—I mean, Steve Albanese, and then Mike, and then Min, and now with Jeff and Todd—and I mean, you're learning every time you talk with them and then you know working with terry and 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 her team i think it's hard to kind of you don't want to i still remember chad price when he got the president the presidency years ago and he stood up he said i'm just going to try to make sure nothing bad happens yeah you know (laughs) and ultimately that may be a great strategy but there are things that we need to do probably individually there are small little things that will help that be you know pieces of the puzzle that will. Make, uh, continue to make Posna great. I think Posna is just a phenomenal organization, and you know we're getting we're in that sort of stage where we've gotten pretty darn big, and so that causes some challenges with respect to the meeting and you know convention center versus hotel. You know, COVID has affected us, and everybody. You know, the the price of everything has gone way up—the food and beverage and internet services. So we're, sh- we're we're kind of working those sort of things. What does a meeting actually mean? You know, what do people really want to come to? Uh, the annual meeting as much as they used to, you know, people kind of realize hey, we can do things via Zoom or, you know, it's kind of nice not to have to travel all the time. So I think those are sort of things to, to look at uh, over time. I think that one of the challenges that we're going to have as we move forward is a subspecialization. Like for us, for example, we have the SRS, right? Sports folks have their, their meeting, hand folks have their meeting. I think one of the challenges and one of the things we have to make sure is that we always think posna is our is, is the meeting we want to go to and the uh, the association that that we really want to kind of be very close to
0: yeah and I, and then i think that that's a great point and and obviously being part of the annual meeting process right now, those, are, those things, I think, are, are sort of uh, front most in, in my mind a lot of times. But this meeting, to me, has always sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, signified why this is such a great society. Because, I mean, the education here is the best. Right. But, I mean, I get so excited to see friends. And the hope that I have is because I, I, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, going to uh, ASM for the sports guys and going to SRS, I think, is is really remarkable but these were, we, we all went to fellowship to a pediatric orthopedic fellowship. And so the pediatric orthopedists will always be here. And the social aspect of that is hopefully what will continue to bring people, uh, yeah. people back. So Yeah.
1: No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, pediatric orthopedists have a certain personality and it's a giving personality. And it's a, you know, uh, much more, I think, uh, you know, collegiality than, than other organizations. That may. I love the SRS. Yeah. But it's not the same feel. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's, you know, it's it's got some advantages over posing it. It's maybe a little bit more stringent uh, with respect to, you know, the audience and, you know, questions that come from the from the floor. And, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's no better feeling. It's also that's sometimes positive. what
0: makes it great here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So... Um, Another thing that I wanted to talk briefly about was research. And yeah. it's funny, as Matt talked about, like sort of Danisms <laughs> that, uh, that he picks up on PAO, and you still have the same things. <laughs> I still remember um, our first paper together, yeah. um, which uh, you've done a lot of papers since then, but was on hypokyphosis yeah. that Jeff, uh, when he was the research coordinator, and we all did. And I, I distinctly remember, first of all, being amazed that I asked for the data, and like a day later it showed up, which is <laughs> just, right. I mean, that's what you can get in Dallas. And immediately running back to, I think it was a call that weekend, so the room, and like writing basically a first draft and sending it to you. And your comment was, the devil's in the details. We need to massage this a little bit more. Huh. And it's funny that that term. It's funny you I funny mean, say it, that. I don't remember that. Well, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but it was funny when, uh, when we did this research thing a month ago at Dallas, Matt joked about the devil's in the details. But the reality is it's a, it's a phrase that has stuck to, uh, with both of us. And and I tell it to our own residents and fellows, and I think that it sort of um, symbolizes a lot in a lot of ways your approach to research, which, which I think has always been very thoughtful, but very careful to make sure that the message that, the, that the, the data is showing is actually what is going to be uh, put in the paper. So just talk, I, wanted, I didn't really have a question more like can you talk about that philosophy and sort of how, how that's driven you over time to make sure that you're doing high quality you know uh, truthful research.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I grew up with folks that really instilled in me uh, that truthfulness in everything you do, including research is, is critically important. And Gillespie sort of drilled that into me. He was a very innovative guy, but he said, you know, don't try to do a lot of research projects. Do the ones you do very, very well and make sure that you deliver a message that's based on the data. It's got to be a data-driven sort of conclusion and um, and so you know, and the same thing at Scottish Rite. I mean, I think one of the th- one of the brands of Scottish Rite is looking at complications and really honestly reporting, yes. and making sure that the data. I mean, the data is sacred, and you have to make sure it's scrubbed clean, and uh, and then take away your biases as much as you can, which is not sometimes easy to do, and really look at the data and kind of deliver a message and. You know, I think still we suffer from that today. I mean, I think people have their biases and they say, well, yeah, but that data says that, but. There's, there's flaws in the data and there's flaws in every data set but I think it's really important because ultimately at the end of the research is a young boy, a young girl that we're trying to make better and so I think that's why it's important and so I use that, that a lot because I think sometimes we get to be we're headline readers as opposed yes. to really looking deep into the data and making sure that, you know, we're coming up good with uh, conclusions that are going to make a difference because ultimately we're trying to make patients better, yeah. care better.
0: Yeah, I think that, the, I mean, that's it's it's interesting, especially looking at our residents who I think focus. Uh, they do a lot of work with the trauma guys and the joints guys, and it's a lot of registry based stuff. And and I've always sort of shied away from it for that reason. And yeah. I think it's right, you're you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, you're trying to make a patient better and to try to tweak some fizz data so that it sort of applies to something. You end up I think losing
1: the force for the tree sometimes. Yeah. To, um, but when you're, when yeah, I think it's important for us to do that. I, some of the papers, like I was talking to some of the residents uh, the other day, and. Um, because I quoted Craig Birch's article that we did together on osteochondromas of the fibula and that's yeah. a specific clinical problem and that you can look to that paper and it's not a huge number but it's the biggest one we have to say okay if I operate on this patient what's the likelihood their perineal nerve's not going to work at least historically you know from our series as opposed to saying I'm going to look at all of the patients with osteochondromas and you know I'm not sure what that provides you and so um, I think all of the Projects I've tried to do that are, came out of a clinical question, which usually comes from Monday night conference, where we go, yeah. "Well, what's the results of that?" I have no idea. There's nothing good in the literature, so let's let's look at a project.
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed talking to guests about, um, and sometimes it's, it's it's a little bit of a challenging thing because there's it's you know we spend forty five minutes talking about practice, but life balance and I I mean I talk about a lot of family uh, to uh, my guests about families but I actually know your family I know Lisa I remember the kids when they were when they were little and running around your backyard we would have dinner over there as fellows and now they're Emma's in college and you know it's crazy Um, and so you know, with all that was going on, what were some of the challenges that you faced? You know, or some of the mistakes we've all got them that you made in terms of trying to achieve that balance? And I feel like just talking to you over time that you've gotten better at achieving a balance from a family standpoint.
1: Yeah, I think it's very challenging, and I think it's uh, you, you have to work on it. You know, as much as you can, hopefully daily, to take good care of patients. It takes time. Yep, and. You know, if they're more complex patients, it's going to take a little bit more time, and and so you have that on one hand. On the other hand, you have the most important part of your life that you have to try to take care of and, and be a part of, because it's the thing you love the most and you're the most enjoyable. So I, I put it under the category of managing imbalance. You're managing an imbalance scenario. I mean, you just uh, and so you have to communicate. And Lisa's an amazing lady, and she's my better half for sure, as you know, because anybody that knows her loves Lisa more than they love me, for sure. Um, and my kids uh, are hugely important to me. I mean, Emma seems like she was born you know, yeah. yesterday, right? Exactly. And so now she's off to college, and then the boys are going to be off to college here in the next couple of years. So... You know, we've tried to be... um, Fortunately, Lisa's been able to kind of stay at home and do an amazing job with the family and the kids. Uh, We sort of have, like, uh, my curfew is a certain time. Like, listen, I know you want to kind of be there and write papers at nighttime, but, you know, at one point it was 7 o'clock, except for Monday night conference, and then it got push back to 6.30. That was when I was a fellow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 7.30. Uh, yeah. yeah, right. And, so, and then the other part of it that I think has been helpful, and again, I'm going to give my place, myself probably a C plus on yeah. this, all this stuff, but like when we used to live in our first house, when I turned from Preston onto Churchill, I said, okay, yep. next minute, you have a minute to kind of, no matter what has happened, good or bad, you got to be ready to take out the garbage, you know, Give the kids bass and, and do the best you can with that. And so um, and I, some of my best times are with the kids. You know, coach. I coach the boys in soccer and basketball, and just have unbelievable memories. And I continue to go to their soccer game. I mean, they play soccer at the club yeah, they level. They don't want you and coaching anymore. They don't. Have, no, I can't coach them anymore. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, that's my version of it. Lisa may give you a different version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I mean it takes time. I mean you got the, you got two things that you're struggling with, and I've sort of given up. I, I mean I never really. You know, I love to do other things, but I've not had a, you know, a regular golf game or you know that sort of thing because you know that's certainly not important when those other two things are, are yeah. much more important.
0: Yeah, you know, you, uh, it's it's amazing. I've heard had a couple of people. I think uh, Peter Waters was the one who I heard first, sort of what, that walking in the door kind of thing and dropping it. And it's tough because I mean I remember. My first bad spine complication, I feel like I just lost two weeks of my relationship with my kids. Obviously, yeah. it's not as bad as what the child lost, but, you know, you realize that those have to, you have to take a step back from um, from those to some extent to make sure that you can continue to give to your family so you don't have like six victims mm-hmm. at exactly. the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Know, and is- I think sometimes if you're not happy and if you're not in a place that uh, will allow you to kind of, you know give back to your family, then it's tough. So you, you have to get the work done. Otherwise you're going to be thinking about it when you're home. And so today still have the same challenges, you know, kind of figure out, okay, how are we going to juggle these things? What are you going to give up? What are you not so that you can carve out time and it's hard. Yeah. So,
0: uh, and I I don't want you to uh, commit to this for by any stretch, but, um, you know, if you look at Tony, he was chief for, what, 35 years, right? Yeah. And you look at our, you know, national presidents, and most national presidents around the world, they're given sort of a term. Yeah. Is this something, is, is being chief of your um, center with the idea that, you know, you are going to, I mean, you've got three kids, eventually Italian family, you'll have lots of grandkids because <laughs> that's what you all do. Yeah. And, um, and you, have, you have lost, to some extent, the ability to go out and play golf and things like that. Is this something that you want to do and be a Tony Herring where you're, you know, Retiring as chief or that eventually you may say, you know what, I've, I've, I've done what I want and I want somebody else to know. It's sort of like what Peter did in yeah. Boston.
1: Yeah, I think I've started to think about that stuff yeah. in the last year or so. Um, I think ultimately, you know, you have to make sure that you're the right person. Yeah. I don't think the... Continuation of what we've done being the, I've been the fourth chief uh, at Scottish Wright and we have we celebrated our 100 year anniversary right. last year right so you know there, we have talented people on the team and you know if I'm not the right person I gotta figure that out make sure and realize that ahead of time so that you know there could be a good transition and so you have to start thinking about that thing you know the book that uh, I like I know a lot of folks are reading is Strength to Strength and if you read that book and you sort of you know you kind of realize that there are things that I do much better today than I did before, but there are also things that I used to do yesterday that I'm not going to be able to do as well today. And so how do you shift that? And, and this is all part of it. And so I think it will be different. I don't know what that difference, how much that difference is, but uh, I'm going to try to do it. So yeah. that the institution is in a great place.
0: It's, so it's so funny. So the last two questions that I had was, one, uh, any good leadership books. So strength, yeah. strength, strength is great. But uh, it's funny because I've talked. I mean, Mike Vitale came and uh, was our visiting professor, I don't know, five, six years ago, which was spectacular. And he gave several lectures. one of the lectures we do in the evening um, and with the spouses, there is something non-medical, and he gave it on sort of self-improvement. And he, gives, I mean, his bibliography was incredible. And actually, a bunch of the spouses reached out, like, "Hey, can I just have that bibliography?" Did, again, you got a lot of stuff on your plate. Do you find time to read? How did you go about doing sort of that betterment? And any books that sort of helped you? You have to do the leadership Yeah,
1: I mean, there's so many out there, and I think you have to be careful about trying to do too much of that um, because it's almost uh, you know you got to stick to some true and tried uh, principles. But w- my favorite book of all time is Good to Great. Yes, I mean, I mean everybody reads that, but if you really read it and reread it, there's so many really clear principles there that uh, you know getting the right people on the bus. You know, being a very you know, the leadership uh, chapters incredible in that uh, in that book, and it was data driven too. You know, the work that Jim Collins and his team yeah. did to come to that to write that book, uh, I think is important to read. You know, the, but there's other there's other principles. Like I think the one I try to kind of really always keep in mind is that nobody works for you; you work for them. And if you kind of keep that in mind, you keep in mind the vision of what is the what's the mission of the institution and you try to remind yourself and everybody else, then I think those two things are really important. And so, you know, we're, we're going to make this decision not because it's good for me or good for you. It may not be good for us individually, but it's good for the institution. And sometimes that's that's hard to, to realize yourself, but also to kind of uh, uh, communicate to everybody else. Yeah.
0: And then, um, again, you had sort of led into this about things that have changed over time. Do you? I mean, you've been in practice 25 years, basically. Yeah. Do you have something that you could tell 1998 Dan, like do this differently, um, knowing
1: what you know in 2022? Yeah, I think if if I could, and I still struggle with this now, is you know the the balance in terms of your time between being in and out, If you think about it, like I operate two days a week, and they're almost always full, and so you're basically out of pocket for two full days out of those five weeks and five days. And so, you know, and and, uh, Gans, again, he did it right. He operated three days a week, but again, he was done by three o'clock most of the time. And he really carved out time, I think carving out time for thinking and for writing. But I think Sometimes, sometimes people write too early, and they're writing about things that they haven't gained enough experience. Or uh, and so the time to do it is to do operate early in your career, cut your teeth, get to be a good clinician, um, kind of do some research projects along the way. I don't try to try to you know boil the ocean on research. But now is the time for me to kind of say back off a little bit and, and write and and uh, and you know, minister, so to speak. And so um, I would say that if I could do it again, I don't have any regrets, but I mean, there's little nuances, things things in terms of time management that I think I would do a little bit different.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I want to finish, um, and this has been amazing, uh, with something that's a little bit melancholy, but also a little bit of a celebration. So the last uh, Scottish Right people I had on were uh, Amy and Christine. Yeah. And if you look at the time, it was actually in the fall of 2020. And I had asked Lori... Yeah. To be um, uh, on in September, and she originally said yes, and then because of her illness, wasn't right. able to. And, uh, you know, she was so meaningful to all of us. But I, I just, you know, you're, you're the first God's Right person I've had on since then, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to ask them at the time, but it was obviously sort of a sensitive time, and um, since her passing, I know you wrote a great reflection in, I yep. think it was Jay Posna, um, just if you have anything to say about Lori and her influence on you, cause you were, you guys were both sort of young in yeah. practice together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I wrote it, I still remember with Lori, when I rotated as a fellow, uh, just watching her, um, and, uh, well, first, first memory is at the end of the rotation, uh, she gave me a big hug as a fellow and I was like thinking you know that was really special but I was also thinking none of the other staff would have given me a hug Charlie No, Charlie Steve? So that's that's one uh, reflection uh, the other is that um She invited me and several others to go to her house on a Sunday, and I completely, I don't know how I forgot about it, but I forgot about it, and I was talking to my mom on the phone. She's like, I thought you were supposed to go over to one of your staff's house. I'm like, oh, my God. So anyway, I got there for dessert, and she was very sweet. Uh, But Lori, uh, the thing about Lori is she did all three things very well, and she was spectacular at uh, treating the family. And she even said that in one of our fellowship uh, communications, And, and she was magical with families. And uh, really kind of connected with them and the patients Um, and so she she led in so many different ways but that clinical care she was spectacular at she was a very good surgeon she was obviously a brilliant researcher uh, and she was a great educator and um, you know we love Laura I still remember when she told me she was going to take the chief job in Colorado and it sort of you know kind of was emotional uh, for both of us yeah and uh and laurie and i we had a good relationship i mean she was tough yes. she was a tough lady i mean th- which was which made her great and uh, we she had you know we had a little bit of uh, you know discussions uh, yeah. back and forth through the years but uh, you know you look back on her career and and just what she gave to all of us you know she uh, she did it right yeah yeah and, and the girls and and the, the family yeah and yeah. her balance in her life yeah. and you know, and Bob and uh, and the girls and what, what, what they are today is, yeah. is a reflection. That, that was always about.
0: one of the things that really struck me was just the, everything that you said. And she seemed to have a magic sauce that I, you know, continuously, like you said, you're sort of consistently out of balance. But she seemed to find more balance, I feel like, than the yeah. rest of us. Maybe it's just a yeah. gender difference or something like that. Yeah. I just have I struggle with that. But um, she was an
1: amazing... amazing she was a special person. lady, yeah. for sure. And I think you know her legacy is going to live on and um, i think she's a part of all of us in, in many yeah. ways so. yeah i'm
0: excited you know for the uh, lead Like glory symposium yeah. for pause i think it's yeah. gonna be, yeah, like, it's going to be fantastic this year so well Dan this was i mean i could honestly go for hours and hours this is just a, a huge uh, joy for me again as a former fellow i think you know we, for for you, Tony and John and and Steve, that was so it would have been the same thing with you interviewing them. But I mean for those of us who've been with you for the past, you know, twenty five years, it's it's a huge honor to be able to to talk
1: to your mentor for an hour and a half and so this has been great. Well thanks, it's been awesome. You do a great job and it was fun. It was Easy, fun conversation. So yeah. thanks. bye
0: flies by. flies yeah, by really fast. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks a lot. Good luck with the year of, uh, of uh, leadership. I know that we'll be better off
1: for having you. Well, thanks. Yeah. That um, means a lot for sure. Yeah. I sure. <laughs> uh, mean, that was awesome.